Greetings. This is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. On today's podcast, we're going to take a bit of a different approach, leveraging some of the in-house experts that we have here at Diamond Hill to discuss how the healthcare industry is tackling the coronavirus pandemic. First, I'll be speaking with Chendor Virapan, one of our senior research associates. Uh, I'm going to go through his credentials for you, and once you hear them, I'm sure you'll understand why I'm taking the time to speak with him today. Chendor has a Bachelor's of Science in Computer Science and a Master's of Science in Biology from the University of Nebraska, a Master's of Bioscience Management from the Keck Graduate Institute of Applied Life Sciences, and a PhD in Genetics, Molecular, and Cellular Biology from the University of Southern California. Second, I'll be speaking with Laura O'Dell, a research analyst and sleeve manager on our research opportunities strategy, as well as a former scientist. Laura also brings an impressive background to the discussion with a Bachelor's of Science in Biochemistry from the University of St. Andrews, her Master's in Immunology from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and an MBA from Babson College. On today's call, I'll be speaking with Chendor about uh, what we're doing to prevent the infection and to treat the virus, as well as uh, look at some of the key clinical research studies that have been going on and are currently in progress. Uh, and in speaking with Laura, we'll talk about testing capacity, um, where we think we stand right now, uh, and how we can improve uh, testing over the longer term. As always, stay healthy, stay safe, and thank you for listening. Chendor, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, we'll jump right into the questions. Uh, what are we doing to either prevent infection or treat the virus? And what are some of the treatment modalities that are potentially available right now? Hi, Doug. Thank you. Um, so just broadly speaking, when we, talk, when we talk about flattening the curve, what we mean is to reduce the exponential growth of new cases. But in terms of the treatment, what it really means is we have to reduce the flow of serious cases into the ICU or into critical care, given that our resources are constrained. So we know that out of 100% of patients, 80 are mild, about 50% of patients are about moderate, and for most of these patients, they will, they will clear out the disease by themselves and they don't need prolonged hospitalization. But the key here is the 5% of patients who will require intensive hospital, hospitalization. So this is essentially what's causing all the strain to the healthcare system. So the question then becomes, where does the pharmaceutical industry fit in? Well, it fits in, in two, two fronts, essentially. So one is on the vaccine side, and you've heard a lot about vaccines in the news. But more critically, what we need is acute treatment, which is to treat those severe patients within the hospital setting and get them out of the hospital as soon as possible with the least amount of clinical symptoms. So I think that's where the pharmaceutical industry, industry is focused in, so both vaccines and treatment options. So in terms of treatment, the way to think about this is we want to move as many of those 5% of severe patients into the moderate bucket and move as many as the moderate patients into the mild bucket. That is essentially what treatment interventions will be designed, are designed to do. So the need of the hour is essentially reducing clinical symptoms, suppressing the viral count in the body, and drastically improving hospital discharge rates. 
So uh, within each of these modalities, can you highlight key clinical research studies that are in progress right now? Sure, thanks, Doug. Um, I guess we can start with vaccines. So right now in the news, we keep hearing that vaccines are 12 to 18 months away. And the question then is, why is that? So first of all, vaccines are pretty tricky to study, to manufacture, and also scale up production to meet millions to meet millions of doses that are required uh, in the wide population that it's designed to act in. Um, vaccines also require larger and more complex trials. And this is to ensure that safety, efficacy, and most importantly, durability happens in the broad population. So this is critical. So traditional manufacturing, therefore, it requires a lot of high capital costs. And it's also highly regulated because you're dealing with a live virus. So the key here is, can we speed up vaccine development? So we have some options here. So, the, so we have the traditional uh, vaccine development, which I just outlined. The next generation of vaccines are actually give us more hope in a sense, because in this case, we're not dealing with an entire virus as the starting point. What we do is we identify a protein and we can then purify that that protein or that target that's in question. And then we can introduce that as a vaccine into the population. So this could speed up potentially um, vaccine development time for COVID-19. And this technology is called recombinant vaccines. And we know that there are some large entrenched players that are beginning to do research in this area. So you have GSK, um, you have Sanofi, you have Novavax, you have a few companies that are diving in deep into recombinant vaccines. But they themselves say that to get a full readout and commercialization, it could take somewhere between 12 and 18 months. So essentially, we're still looking at the next flu season or maybe even beyond before we see something definitive. It is possible that we could have some interim data readouts that could, um, that could speed up the access to vaccines, but it's, it's, it's risky to begin with. Um, on the other hand, we don't know what vaccine is actually going to work. So everyone has to try this to see who succeeds. You may have heard about a company called Moderna, which has also been in the news. And the reason why Moderna is exciting is they actually skip a bunch of steps that's required to make a vaccine. So what they do is they take the viral protein that the immune system could recognize. They put that into a sort of a gene therapy. They introduce that gene therapy into the patient and the patient then produces the viral protein, which the immune system can then recognize and produce antibodies against. So you're basically skipping the, the production and the scaling of a, of a potential vaccine, and you're directly injecting the, the target itself into the human body, which can then produce its own vaccine per se. So this is very exciting because RNA technology, which is what Moderna uses. It's called the gene therapy platform. You can think of that as uh, some sort of an RNA technology. And it is faster to produce, it's cheaper to manufacture, and it's very easy to scale up. And therefore, it could potentially get to market quickly. So right now, they're recruiting 45 patients in phase one trials. Um, the trial itself is going to last one year, but we could get interim data within two to three months after fully enrolling in this trial. So essentially through the summer, we could see some data. And if the data is really good, they could potentially get into market on an emergency basis. So this is another exciting part of vaccine development, which could really help in the COVID-19 situation. 
Now, Pfizer is also working on a similar technology in partnership with a German company called BioNTech. So this is essentially like the, the vaccine part of it. And something that's more related to vaccine is also called as antibody prophylaxis. And Regeneron is a company that's working on antibody prophylaxis. Essentially what this means is they identify different proteins that could bind to the virus. They scale that up, they produce it into a biologic, they inject that into your body. And these antibodies could essentially bind to the virus and neutralize them before it causes an infection. So in a way, it could also protect you from a potential infection by using antibody prophylaxis. That's something Regeneron is working on. And they have been um, pretty aggressive about this. They announced that they're gonna start testing in humans, hopefully in the summer. And by fall, they should start scaling up production of an antibody cocktail. So that is also pretty exciting. And according to them, they say they can produce about 20,000 doses per month by the end of August. And that's also pretty exciting. So this is a quick summary for vaccines in COVID-19. The bottom line is to get a fully approved vaccine is gonna take some time. Um, but the best case scenario on an emergency basis, we're looking at this fall. And that's for a vaccine. So for you get the shot, you're clear, much like we get a flu vaccine, is that right? Right, much like we get a flu vaccine. So this could protect us for a period of time. We're not sure if it'll actually suppress the, pro uh, suppress the virus. Like, you know, if you think about it at like SARS or MERS where the, where the vaccine is not in the population or even measles where we suppress the virus to a, to a large extent. In this case, we probably want to at least make COVID-19 look like the flu going forward. Right. So it'll, so it'll always be with us, but a way to, to mitigate some of the damage that comes from it. Exactly. To protect us for the next season. Gotcha. Um, so another area that we were going to talk about would be antivirals. So maybe talk a little bit about those. Right. So antiviral is essentially the need of the hour because, you know, you have patients literally dying at the doorstep of a hospital or in an in a ICU bed. And the reason is we don't have anything to treat it. There's nothing that's clinically approved um, for, the, for, for use of COVID-19. That's where we are today. And what we need from an antiviral is you want to be able to alleviate cl clinical symptoms. And this could include uh, respiratory dr uh, distress or organ failure or oxygen saturation or fever. And we want to keep these patients off of ICUs and ventilators. And then the key is to get them out of the hospital as soon as possible. So these are the different clinical endpoints that we, we want to be looking for in antiviral research. So if you look at the list of drugs out there, it's staggering. I mean, you have dozens of these drugs that's under investigation. Some of them are more compelling than others. And um, right now, what we always hear about in the news is two drugs. One is hydroxychloroquine, which is an anti-malarial drug. And on the other hand, you hear uh, Gilead's remdesivir, um, which is another antiviral, which is designed to stop the replication of the virus. You also hear about other antiviral uh, modalities and also immune therapy and plasma therapy. So there's like a whole bunch of clinical trials that's going on right there. So it's really difficult to parse this data to figure out which drug works better in what setting. But as we go on with the situation or with, as these things develop, I think we're getting a more clear picture as to what works and what doesn't work. So again, we don't have high quality trials Clinical data is sparse, it's unreliable, 
or at best it's mixed. So I, I could just go through a couple that's the that's most interesting. So the first one is uh, HCQ or hydroxychloroquine. There's also a related compound called chloroquine, but chloroquine is not necessarily used because it's also very toxic. But hydroxychloroquine is used for anti-malaria. It's also used for rheumatoid diseases. And why is there so much excitement? So the first thing that we've, we saw in a January publication, I believe, is that HCQ has high potency against anti-COVID-19 on a Petri dish. So the, we don't know how potent it's gonna be in the human, and we also do not, do not know what kind of dosage is required in humans for, for us to reduce the COVID count within the body, but it's compelling information. And HCQ is thought to inhibit the entry of the virus into the body and also in its replication. So it, can, it has a two-pronged mechanism of action. And this is theoretical, but this is what we think. So HCQ right now is being used off-label across the world because it's, it's a generic drug. It's out there and people are using it. Some experts in China, um, they, you know, if you go to some WHO uh, webcast, you can see them talk about this. And they think that HCQ has a lot of promise in, in the early stage of the disease and perhaps even in prevention. But again, we have no definitive data. Um, again, there's been, uh, you know, there, there's, a, there's a paper that's always cited from France which showed excellent efficacy. And then there's a paper that came out from China that showed that HCQ does, has no efficacy. There's no difference between the control arm and the HCQ arm. So right now, the, the trials have thrown up mixed results, but from the bits and pieces of information I could gather, empirically, I think the data is pointing towards the right direction, that there could be a use for HCQ in COVID-19 treatment. So right now we have a bunch of large trials that's underway. In fact, the WHO just announced a large trial, I believe in Northern Europe, that's gonna test HCQ in a larger setting in a much better control environment and with robust clinical protocols, which is very important for us to decipher the data. And there are also other trials that's gonna test for HCQ in prevention. Again, this is not something we need right now and that those trials probably read out in a year or two. And on the safety side, we have to be a little bit careful with HCQ because it's implicated with cardiac issues. But so far, HCQ is giving us a lot of promise. And we know a lot about HCQ over the last two months from smaller trials. And over the next two to three months, we should see more robust clinical data. So we'll have to wait and see here. Um, the other important drug um, is Gilead's Remdesivir, and Gilead is a name that we own in the large cap strategy. So right now, um, this drug has been given a compassionate use clearance by the FDA. Um, so essentially, this means that the drug is going to be use, used at risk. So we don't know about the safety and efficacy of the drug. The FDA hasn't approved it, but it's allowing this drug to be used on a compassionate basis or an emergency basis. So what is Remdesivir? So Remdesivir is a is a is a molecule that's designed to strongly inhibit viral genome replication. So it is initially designed to work against SARS, MERS, Ebola, but we haven't seen much success there. But again, in that same January paper, remdesivir was shown to have very high potency, much, I would say significantly higher than HCQ in COVID-19 um, Peterish studies. So that is very exciting. So four large trials are underway across 
uh, the, uh, across the world. So when I say large, I'm talking about a few hundred patients. Normally, the, patient, the clinical trial we've been seeing so far involves 10 patients, 20 patients, 30 patients. But this is a fairly large trial, um, set of trials. And the earliest we could probably see something would probably be in April, which is exciting. Um, so that is something we'll have to wait and see. But I think the empirical and early clinical evidence suggests that the drug is pretty effective. Now, again, we'll also have to worry about safety. So there is some evidence of uh, liver enzyme elevation or potential liver damage, um, also vomiting, and also bleeding. But again, in an acute setting, if you're just going to use the drug for about 10 to 14 days, I think there's still a lot of potential for remdesivir. So these are individual drugs, and individually they have shown a lot of promise. But I think the exciting part about this is there are tons of trials right now that are trying these drugs in combination, either with themselves, with ACQ and remdesivir, but also with other agents. So there's a couple of papers that came out that showed uh, some data with the use of zinc, um, with the use of antibiotics. On the remdesivir side, we've seen some trials that's underway in combination with HCQ. We've also seen remdesivir in combination with other antivirals. So when we talk about other antivirals, there's another set of drugs out there called protease inhibitors, which, are sh which also show a lot of potential, mainly because it's of the mechanism of action. So in, in order for a virus to replicate, you've got to first replicate its genome, and you also have to replicate its proteins. So what a protease inhibitor does is essentially block the maturation of those proteins, and essentially you cannot make a new viral molecule and then propagate the infection. So that's how protease inhibitors work. We've had some negative data. So AbbVie has a protease inhibitor cocktail called Collectra and showed negative results. But at the same time, there is a mechanism of action that suggests that we could use protease inhibitors in combination with the replication or genome replication inhibitor like remdesivir. So there's a lot of combinations as possible. And these are all exciting opportunities. But again, we're too early in the process to know what is exactly going to work. I would caution that it's very risky to extrapolate unreliable trials. We've seen a lot of social media sharing of data, which you know sometimes it's good information, sometimes it's pretty bad information. So what we need to do is remain patient, um, let doctors experiment, let them do so we have a few drugs that's available for them to use. And as we get gather more and more information, we will know for sure what exact combination in what treatment sequence is going to be really helpful for COVID-19 patients who are, who are very serious. Yeah, that, that goes to one of the things that I always tell both my parents and, and my children, that don't believe everything you read on the internet, don't believe everything you see in social media. And I think that's a very important lesson to not follow up on what you see on Facebook and think that it's necessarily valid. Um, one other area that we hadn't touched on was immunology, um, but maybe some thoughts there as well. Right. So immunology is interesting because they call immunology as more of an adjunct therapy. What this means is this could be used, you know, in combination with the frontline therapies. So you have the antivirals uh, that could be used in the frontline therapy, but also there are some patients that experience organ damage and organ, massive organ failure because of this infection. And that's a, that is generally driven by the body's own immune system where there is an immune system storm that causes a condition called cytokine release syndrome. And this could cause massive organ damage. There, could, there are also other immune system related conditions that could 
exacerbate this condition, uh, COVID-19 uh, infection. So I think the immune system has a role to play in this, but again, we are very early in the process. But interestingly, um, China uh, allowed for the approval of Roche's drug called Actemra, and Actemra is an immunology-associated drug. It's used in oncology. It's also used in immunology. And it is used to basically stop that cytokine storm or stop that immune storm from essentially damaging your own organs. So that's something that is approved. Regeneron came out and said they're also looking at a drug that's similar, that it works the same way, and they're also looking at uh, studying that in more detail. Um, there are also other immunology-related drugs that's already approved but could be co-opted for COVID-19 treatment. Again, this is a lot of this is theory and conjecture, but I think the immune system does play a role in this because, after all, it's, a, it's an infectious disease. So I think there's also potential in the immune, immune, immunology side of things, but again, we're early there. So I think in, in terms of frontline treatment, we still have to look at combinations of protease inhibitors, things like remdesivir and HCQ, but also potentially in the future, um, immunology drugs or immunolo immunology-associated drugs. Um, the other adjacent uh, development is essentially the FDA is now allowing plasma transfer therapy from patients who have recovered to patients who are in critically ill condition on a case-to-case -case basis. So that's something that's also being experimented on. Again, these are desperate times. So the FDA has been very, very lenient. I mean, in my years of looking at what the FDA has been doing, they have been pretty forthcoming and pretty supportive of investigations out there, clinical investigations out there. So I think hopefully, you know, industry and academia and clinicians and the FDA and other reg authorities can get together and address this issue. Well, this, this has been great, Chandor. I really appreciate it. Uh, fascinating information, very helpful. Um, so we'll, we'll wrap it up at that. Uh, again, I want to thank you for your time um, on behalf of myself and the listeners, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you, Doug. Laura, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it from your, your homestead in Florida as we're all hunkered down. Um, we'll get right into the question. So uh, from a testing standpoint, where do we stand right now? Testing capacity has ramped up fairly slowly. Initially, only the CDC and a few state labs were able to perform the tests, and the capacity of these labs was only a few hundred people per day. Then the week of March 9th, the large labs, so LabCorp and Quest, got approval to run tests, and we had a large jump in testing capacity to several thousand tests per day. Today, every major lab and diagnostics player has an approved test. So now we have the lab capacity for about 80,000 tests a day. The major labs have additional capacity coming on board that could take us to well over 100,000 tests per day. The challenge has been getting enough testing supplies, such as sterile nasal swabs, as well as qualified providers to administer the test. For example, just this morning, I saw an article in my local paper that said one of the local testing drive-throughs had to be shut because they had run out of testing supplies. So at this point, we still have more demand for testing than we have capacity. Testing so far has been largely done in the centralized labs, and it takes a few days to get the results back. Looking forward, we are now transitioning to point-of-care testing, which is a type of testing where the diagnostic instrument is local and you get the results back fast, like you do for your flu test so patients immediately know if they have the virus. Like I said, just about every diagnostics company has an approved test now. 
From a stock point of view, we own Abbott, Thermo Fisher, and Roche. To be clear, the coronavirus pandemic is not part of our investment thesis. For each of these companies, coronavirus testing will increase revenue a little, but the slowdown in the economy will be a greater offset to revenues. But the real reason we own these stocks is because they are high quality companies with a sustainable competitive advantage trading at a discount to intrinsic value. So it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, one of the things we hear about is there aren't enough tests or there, you know, we need to get them faster. And, and I didn't realize I've been reading various articles um, while I'm here at home about, you know, people that have been sick and they go to the hospital and they don't find out until four or five days later that it is exactly what they have. And, and now I understand a little bit about why it's taken so long to, to get these test results back. So you're saying that we're going to have faster test results. Um, so quicker way of finding out, okay, you are sick. We need to get you off on your own in, in quarantine. Is that right? Yeah. The point of care testing, but keep in mind it, just like this other capacity, it takes time to roll this out. So these tests have only just started to seek approval from the FDA. So again, we, we still have to wait for these tests to go through. So, you know, it, it may seem like a simple question, but you know, why, why is the testing so important? It's a great question. Um, first, we need to get a handle on who is actually sick. If we know who is sick, we can isolate them and then track back to anybody else they may have infected. Of course, the aim of this is to reduce the number of cases in the short term so that we can reduce the immediate burden on the healthcare system and then spread that burden out over time so that healthcare staff and the medical supplies can recover. But ideally, we also want to identify people that are asymptomatic. We know that some people get this disease and only have mild or no symptoms, but they are still able to spread the virus. We need to find those individuals and isolate them as well. We can look at other countries that have been successful with this outbreak to see what strategies they used. Take for example, South Korea, where they were able to hit the ground running and with a high level of testing early in the outbreak. To achieve the same relative level of testing here, we would need to get about 150,000 tests per day. And we're currently nowhere near that level. So it's pretty safe to say that uh, as testing comes up to speed, we're going to see an, uh, maybe even an exponential growth in the number of cases that are already here, but we just don't know about because we haven't had the tests. Yeah, and we've already been, been seeing that in New York, for example, the governor had been saying that he was expecting cases to double every three days or something like that. And I think it's actually doubled over five days. Um, but yeah, we're, gonna, we're in that stage where the more you test, the more you'll find. And if we look at New York City, I think they're at about a 30% hit rate. So uh, people that are tested, 30% of them are actually positive. Um, whereas in places like California, we're starting to see that number come down to more like 10%. So yes, in the short term, definitely gonna see a lot more uh, case numbers. So, so what's next um, in progressing through this with the understanding that or the, the hope that we get through this on the backside of it, you know, but what's next to get us onto that, to the road of, of getting through all of this? So if we want to get people back to work as soon as possible, it's going to become vital that we know not only who has an active infection, but who also has developed immunity. This requires a different type of testing called a serologic test, which is a test for antibodies in the blood. 
When I talked before about the testing that we're doing today, the type that uses a sterile nose nasal swab, that type actually tests for the virus itself. It measures whether or not there's any active disease. Serologic testing, however, can tell us about the history of exposure. This type of testing will help us understand who has had the disease, if they have developed immunity, and how long that immunity lasts. This is key to the recovery because once people have immunity, they can get back to work, they can start to take flights, book hotels, eat out. This is how we get the economy going again. We're already seeing the UK step up by buying 3.5 million serologic tests. Although it would be great to test the US population like this, we'll still learn a lot from the data that's generated in the UK that can help us better understand the disease and apply these learnings here in the US. I'm a believer in human ingenuity, and I think that we'll end up using a number of innovative approaches to fight this virus. Maybe drugs that get patients out of the hospital faster or over the longer term a vaccine, but even just better testing and isolation strategies can help make this a more manageable disease so we can all start getting back to our regular lives. Well, I definitely like ending on a higher note. Um, and that, that was providing a little bit of encouragement, which is always important in these times. So uh, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. And uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and, uh, and we'll talk to you soon. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.